1: Fancy Bear goes to war. Russia denies meddling with U.S. elections. U.S. retaliation for influence operations is still under consideration. Some speculate that when it comes, it may be loud. Siemens patches its widely used HVAC controller. Postmortems on the Yahoo breach continue and draw attention to cybersecurity EFTs. And NIST releases its guide to cyber incident response and recovery. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire Summary, and week in review for Friday, December 23, 2016. More people look at the compromised Android Fire Direction app that enabled Russian forces to locate and destroy Ukrainian artillery during hybrid combat in eastern Ukraine. The Ukrainian officer who developed the app and provided it to his comrades has said reporting on the hack contains rotten information but he also advises users to delete older versions and download the app only directly from him and not from some dodgy third-party source. Some commentators are saying that the risks CrowdStrike reported are overblown because the phones and tablets with the app installed wouldn't be internet-connected. Maybe, but video from Ukrainian sources showing the gunners using the tool certainly suggests they're connected wirelessly to something, in some cases guns, in other cases mapping programs like Google Earth, all of which suggests the devices are accessible from the web and capable of reporting back to the Russian army. Apart from some targeting of ISIS operators developed by monitoring their online activity, this incident does seem to offer the clearest instance yet of lethal tactical hacking. Many observers see this as a new overlap of military operational domains as cyber ops intersect with kinetic combat. Others see a natural evolution of electronic warfare into cyberspace. CrowdStrike attributes the gunner hacks to Fancy Bear, Russia's military intelligence agency, the GRU. It says the code in the ex-agent malware is similar to that found in the U.S. Democratic National Committee networks. Russian President Putin has denied again meddling with U.S. elections and expressed hope for better relations even as U.S. investigation into influence operations continue. President Obama has said the U.S. will take proportionate action against Russian cyber operations at a time and place of its own choosing. The list released this week of Russian organizations and individuals that will face U.S. sanctions is probably not that promised action but rather a continuing response to the years-old Russian re of Crimea and other Ukrainian territory. Reports suggest that the U.S. was better prepared to defend against a hacking offensive than it was for the information operations that actually materialized. So the U.S. still presumably has some retaliatory cyber operations in the barrel, but what those might be remains to be seen. There's not much hint of them in recent high-minded harumphing from director of Central Intelligence Brennan who would decline to sink to the adversary's level, deplores skullduggery, etc. The Council on Foreign Relations says people at Fort Meade told them that U.S. Cyber Command likes the idea of loud cyber weapons, so retaliation, if it comes, may be noisily obvious. Moving to industry news, Siemens releases firmware patches for its popular Dazigo PX Industrial Control Hardware. This product line is widely used for controlling HVAC systems in commercial buildings. Mozilla has announced plans to upgrade sandboxing in its Firefox browser. With Yahoo's future very much up in the air, observers look at the company and see a case study in the tensions that exist among cost control, user experience, and security. Financial analysts note that the record-setting breach has drawn attention to cybersecurity exchange-traded funds. And finally, a kind of Christmas present from NIST. The Institute has released Special Publication 800-184, its Guide for Cybersecurity Event Recovery. Its build is a playbook designed to help organizations respond and recover when they come under cyber attack. And the enterprise would do itself a favor by taking a look. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Professor Avas Rashid. He heads the Academic Center of Excellence in Cybersecurity Research at Lancaster University. Uh, Professor, we talk about uh, APTs, Advanced Persistent Threats, and you wanted to fill us in today on uh, data exfiltration by APTs. Uh,
2: Yes. Um, One of the... uh interesting evolutions of our hyperconnected infrastructure is that within any organization uh, your your systems are increasingly more complex so there was a time where uh, as an organization you pretty much had full control over your network and and what was connected to that network as we open up our infrastructure through internet and web based uh, interfaces we allow employees to bring their own devices we use use uh, cloud uh, cloud-based uh, systems, uh, both both in terms of software and infrastructure, it basically means that increasingly your organization's network is a patchwork of, of, of systems. And that makes security uh, of, of this, this uh, infrastructure a very complex uh, task. Uh, and advanced persistent threats, the sophisticated attackers can actually exploit this complexity. To enter the system and and exfiltrate valuable valuable data from from uh, from the system, uh, uh, we we have seen various scenarios of these where attackers have actually stayed within the system for. You know for several months waiting for an opportunity to uh, do lateral movement uh, we, we also see various patterns in terms of how attackers might actually extract data out of these systems um, uh, a lot of the a lot of the times attackers would use fairly uh, open channels like uh, your http or file transfer protocol email and webmail but also we we see very sophisticated mechanisms that exploit uh, uh, often, you know, cloud-based services such as, uh, you know, the various uh, uh, storage environments that uh, many, many organizations now allow and use, such as, uh, you know, services such as Box or Dropbox. Uh, and the reason is that if you are using these uh, these services as an attacker, then the traffic actually blends in. With normal traffic, and you can, uh, it doesn't get picked up by by security uh, systems and anomaly detection systems. Similarly, you can you can have many other uh, advanced um, uh, exfiltration channels that attackers might use. So, for example, a lot of organizations now use uh, voice over IP techniques, and you can actually use steganography, where you can hide information in those voice over ip packets to try and uh, extract information out of out of these systems uh, in general i think the key problem has to be that whenever we we look at the data across across an organization we we need to think and ask the question where are our data assets because many a times we think of our data assets as things that are in storage they sit somewhere on disk and we think that for example encrypting disks which actually is a very good activity and we must do uh, protects that data but Uh, There is also data in use that is brought regularly into a computer's memory and hence decrypted and is utilized in uh, in, uh, day-to-day processing. And then there is data in motion that transits across the network or from our network into other services, for example, cloud-based services, which actually creates uh, potential uh, vulnerability points which an attacker can exploit. So uh, given that our systems are now so complex and attackers are getting increasingly sophisticated, we need to think about... Where are our data assets and how we may protect them?
1: Avas Rashid, thanks for joining us. My guest today is Keith Malarski. He's a supervisory special agent with the FBI, working out of the Pittsburgh office, where he oversees all cyber investigations for that region. Special Agent Malarski and his team were instrumental in coordinating international efforts to take down the Avalanche botnet, which was a criminal syndicate involved in phishing attempts, bank fraud, and ransomware.
0: Up here in Pittsburgh, we've been working many different botnet cases. Uh, if A couple years ago, we did a takedown of the Game Over Zeus botnet uh, that used the peer-to-peer infrastructure. Uh, and then uh, last year, we did a takedown of the uh, Drydex botnet, so in wake of those two takedowns, we kind of started looking at the Avalanche infrastructure, which was a way for criminals to uh, anonymize their botnets. So uh, instead of just one botnet going over the Avalanche infrastructure, uh, there were a dozen or so at any given time. And what Avalanche did was it had many different layers of obfuscation and proxy networks uh, that kind of almost acted like a, a peer-to-peer bit. It was actually what they call fast flux network that would Enable it to be very difficult for law enforcement to find out where the back end is to be able to shut it down. Uh, and then we had some victims here in Western Pennsylvania uh, from a couple of these botnets that were hosted over Avalanche, uh, and that's kind of how we got involved.
1: And these were not uh, insignificant attempts to transferring money.
0: No, absolutely not. Uh, they, they really go after small to mid-sized businesses that have a few hundred thousand to millions of dollars uh, in in their account. And that's what the criminals were mostly targeting from the banking Trojan side.
1: And, and so the network comes to your attention. Take us through the process of how you go about uh, you know working with other agencies around the world to bring it down.
0: We worked very closely with our German counterparts at the German state police in, in uh, over there. And they had been looking at this infrastructure for a couple of years, uh, and they had reached out to us based off of uh, some of the success we had in the in the previous takedowns. Um, so we started working with them, we started looking at the types of botnets that were being hosted there, and then we were able to get victims here in, in Pennsylvania. Um, and then from starting to do those investigations, we just started pulling the strings uh, and looking at where the infrastructure was hosted around the world, identifying subjects in different countries. We really leveraged our what we call our legal attaches, which are FBI representatives uh, that are stationed in um, all all the countries overseas. They're at the embassies. And their job is to get liaison with our foreign um, partners over there and really make it a lot easier to move these cases along a lot quicker. Uh, so we worked very closely with them to pass intelligence on a real-time basis on where infrastructure was moving, uh, you know, who the subjects are, and uh, we were able to um, make the investigative process go a lot faster.
1: And and so take us, you know, through the point where you feel as though you, uh, you've identified some of the people who are actually running this botnet, uh, and then it's time to pull the trigger and, and bring
0: them in. Yeah. So so what we wanted to do was a a twofold approach. One is we wanted to uh, get the people responsible for it and some of the people that were running the the botnets. But at the same time, we also wanted to hit the infrastructure and take that down. So we had to take a, a, a a two-pronged approach. One is we wanted to work with our foreign law enforcement partners uh, to get them the intelligence for them to do surveillance or whatever uh, they needed to do to confirm the identities and get them the evidence uh, so we could plan searches. Uh, the second thing that we needed to do was uh, work with private industry uh, in order to sinkhole the domains that the malware was using uh, and also to seize the the servers and infrastructure So what we had to do was uh, get a criminal what we call a a criminal temporary restraining order in order to give us the authorities to be able to seize the domains, which uh, the last count, I think, was somewhere around eight hundred and seventy thousand domains that the malware were talked to that we would have to seize. There were over 40 different Internet registries that participated in this, including there was a registry and on Christmas Island. And uh, so hmm. he he was in control of like a couple of the domains, but we had to go to him because uh, we, we had to sinkhole them. And, you know, he ran the local marina and also the Internet registry. So we had to really go, you know, at the far ends of the earth in order to make sure that everything was going to work very well. We had a meeting at the EC3, which is the European Cybercrime Center. Uh, and uh, at Europol, and we brought together all the different countries uh, in the internet registries to kind of say, okay, we're gonna do this takedown on, on this day, and this is kind of what we needed to do uh, and get everything in place. So on takedown day, we went and did our law enforcement action doing uh, searches and arrests, and then we seized servers, and then we started sinkhole into domains to be able to um, take all the infected computers away from the bad guys. Uh, so that's kind of it in a nutshell.
1: Give us a sense for for the scale of the operation. How many people were brought in, and, and what are we talking about with the servers?
0: The, really the, the the scope of it was unprecedented we had over 40 different countries uh, participate in this uh, we had law enforcement action uh, in I, I think about a, a half a dozen of them uh, where we had some uh, seizures and we had some arrests in, in Ukraine uh, and in Bulgaria and in Germany uh, so I can't get into a lot of the law enforcement details yet because it's still ongoing uh, the, you know the scope was really just huge uh, you know with 40 Different countries. If you could just imagine trying to get four people, you know, in a conference room to try to do things coordinated, yet alone to have forty countries from, you know, not being in the conference room to do something coordinated, it, it was very difficult. But it all worked out, and it all turned out very well.
1: Uh, what What are the ripples of this uh, around the world? Do, do the Do the other bad guys around the world take notice?
0: Well, we, we hope so, because what we're trying to target and one of the strategies that that the FBI does in uh, working with our law enforcement partners, is that we want to go after shared criminal services. Uh, and what shared criminal services are, it could be l- like bulletproof hosting providers, it could be people that are, uh, you know, writing malicious code uh, that that's used across, you know, the whole criminal platform. Uh, so in, in this case, we went after and took out one of the shared criminal services that was used by uh, over 12 different organizations that were running their own separate botnets. So, so we think that has a major impact uh, because we're not just disrupting one organization; we're disrupting, you know, 12. Uh, and by taking Avalanche off, it will make it much more difficult uh, for people to host, you know, these uh, malicious code and botnets. We're trying to make the world a smaller place and, uh, because cybercrime has no borders. Uh, and it's this type of coordination and these type of successes uh, that, that we can build on, you know, for, for future operations.
1: That's Keith Malarski. He's a supervisory special agent with the FBI.